Well, my title, uh, the title of my talk might be a little more accurate, actually, if the expression, the moral object, were put between quotation marks. A good part of the talk will be concerned with this expression and some ways in which it might be and sometimes is taken. I'd like to signal some possible confusions that I think the expression, this expression, together with some other expressions and ideas that are associated with it, can and sometimes do give rise to. I hope I will not simply be adding to the confusion. Recently, I, gave, I just recently I gave a course on some of the basic notions in St. Thomas's moral thought, and if there was anything that the students found especially difficult, if not just unintelligible, it was the notion of object. It's not an easy notion. And it's also the subject of some controversy. Toward the end of the talk, I'll address just one of the controversial issues. Anyway, over the last 25 or 30 years, this expression, the moral object, has become rather common in Catholic writing, Catholic scholarly work in ethics, more common, I think, than it used to be. And one of the main reasons for this, I think, is the presence of this expression and the importance of it in the encyclical of St. John Paul II, Very Taught to Splendor, which was published in 1993. What I'd kind of like to focus on is how the encyclical's use of the expression, the moral object, and some other expressions connected with it, relate to St. Thomas's language and thought about moral action. It seems to me that if we try simply to read what the encyclical says back into St. Thomas, or to read the encyclical directly in light of him, we might get just a little confused. Now I don't mean, I do not mean that there is any substantive disagreement between them. On the contrary, I think they're very much in harmony. But there's just enough of a difference in their language and their approach, I think, to throw us off if we're not aware of it. I'll present my concerns under three headings. It's on the handout at the beginning. There's just the introduction of three headings and then a bunch of text. So first, to introduce the matter, let me just quote in a very important passage from Veritatis Splendor and say a couple of things about that. That's the first text <coughs> on the handout. It says, the morality of the human act depends primarily and fundamentally on the object rationally chosen by the deliberate will as is borne out by the insightful analysis, still valid today, made by St. Thomas. It refers to Summa Theologiae, Prima Secundae, Question 18, Article 6. In order to be able to grasp the object of an act which specifies that act morally, it is therefore necessary to place oneself in the perspective of the acting person. The object of the act of willing is, in fact, a freely chosen kind of behavior. To the extent that it is in conformity with the order of reason, it is a cause of the goodness of the will. It perfects us morally and disposes us to recognize our ultimate end in the perfect good 
primordial love. By the object of a given moral act, then, one cannot mean a process or an event of the merely physical order to be assessed on the basis of its ability to bring about a given state of affairs in the world, in the outside world. Rather, that object is the proximate end of a deliberate decision which determines the act of willing on the part of the acting person. Christian ethics pays particular attention to the moral object. Obviously, it's a very meaty passage. Right now, at the beginning, I just want to observe two things about it. They're connected. The first thing is that in this passage, and almost everywhere else in the encyclical as well, when it speaks of the human act or the moral act, what it is actually referring to is the act of willing, and more precisely, the act of deliberate decision, which is to say, choice. Correspondingly, and this is the second thing, here in this passage and almost everywhere else, when the encyclical speaks of the object of the human act or of the moral object, what it is actually referring to is that, is the object of choice, a chosen kind of behavior. Elsewhere, it, the encyclical calls it, calls the object a concrete kind of behavior or a concrete action or a specific act, perhaps also in other ways, but the idea is the same. Chosen action, that is what the encyclical usually, almost always, not quite, treats as the moral object. Now the point that the encyclical is driving at, chiefly, in its discussion of the moral object is very clear, I think. It wants to say that in the moral assessment of human conduct and of human persons, the concrete actions that people choose have to be, have to be taken into account. We cannot consider only a person's sort of global attitude, or what is sometimes called the, the fundamental option, or the transcendental orientation, or something like that. Nor can we consider only the net result or the overall balance of the goods and evils that can be expected to follow upon a person's chosen actions. Any action that one chooses has a moral value or quality of its own, and by the very choice of it, one's will is correspondingly qualified. As that passage says, the choice of a good action, one that is in conformity with the order of reason, causes goodness in the will and perfects a person morally. And there are also actions that are bad in themselves morally the choice of which is detrimental to a person's moral quality. For example, the actions forbidden in the Ten Commandments. But again, this is my point. This is what the document mostly treats as the moral object, a freely chosen action with its own moral value. First section, first heading, St. Thomas many types of moral act and many types of moral object. So now let me turn to St. Thomas's use of this expression, moral object. 
really there is not a lot to say about it. Using the engine, the search engine on the Corpus Thomisticum website, I searched Thomas's works for the express expression objectum morale in all of its possible forms and with up to two words between objectum and morale. In the entire corpus, there are exactly three instances. They are all in the same work, the disputed questions de malo. In fact, they're all in the same article, question two, article six. Two of them are in the article's second objection. So two of them are in one objection, and the third is in the reply to that objection. That's all. That's all I found, anyway. Of course, these are the only the instances of the expression, objectum morale. They are not all the instances of the concept that the expression signifies. That concept appears in Thomas's works a little more often, like very often. But the De Malo passages do tell us something. I will only quote the sentences in which the, the expression appears. For my purposes, the rest of the objection and the reply are, are not important. The sentences are text two in the handout. The objection says, as object is related to act in general, so moral object, objecto morale, is related to moral act. But an object gives the species to an act. Hence, a moral object gives the species to a moral act. And the reply just picks up on that. Just as in general, an act receives its species from its object, so a moral act receives its species from its object. What do these lines tell us about Thomas's concept of the moral object? They tell us that it is basically nothing other than the application of the general concept of the object of an act to the sphere of moral acts. All acts, acts of absolutely all kinds, have objects. Whatever kind the act is, that is the kind of object it has. Physical acts have physical objects. Mental acts have mental objects. Baseball acts have baseball objects. And moral acts have moral objects. You might say, this is trivial. That's right, it is. It's trivial. There's nothing really very abstruse, nothing singular or sui generis about the mere concept moral object. If you have the concept of the object of an act and you have the concept of a moral act, <coughs> just put them together. Of course, the De Malo lines are also saying that the object gives an act its species, and that's not a trivial point. I'll, I'll return to that point later. But what interests me right now is the sheer breadth of the concept of moral object. It's an application of an even broader concept, object of an act, and in itself it is also extremely broad. I mean, if acts generally come in many different kinds, so do moral acts. And each kind has its own object. I think you talked about this yesterday. What is a moral act for St. Thomas? 
He tells us right at the beginning of the moral part of the Summa Theologiae, the Prima Secundae, quote, moral acts are the same as human acts, which is also how Veritatis Splendor speaks. And what are human acts? He says they are acts that proceed from a deliberate will. That too resonates with Veritatis Splendor, which speaks of the will and of deliberate decision. But as I observed, what the encyclical is mostly referring to when it speaks of the human act is precisely this, deliberate decision or choice. Now, I think we can say for St. Thomas that the primary or the fundamental act proceeding from a deliberate will is that, is choice. Thomas describes choice, following Aristotle, he describes choice as deliberate appetite or deliberate design. I think we can say, as Alan Donegan says, that choice is the essential element in human action in a pretty fundamental way. And also in line with the encyclical, Thomas holds that choices have objects and that their objects are always actions. So that lines up. But to be more precise, Thomas, what Thomas says is that the object of a choice is always itself a human action, a human act. You choose to eat a pizza. Your choice is a human act, and so is your eating the pizza. And this brings me to the first possible point of confusion that I want to point out. For Thomas, choice certainly is a moral act and a human act, and maybe even in a way the chief one, but it is not the only one. Its object, which is what Veritatis Splendor mostly speaks of as the moral object, is also a human act, and therefore a moral act. And so it also has an object of its own. So what, in a way what I'm suggesting is that in relation to St. Thomas, it's just a little misleading to speak about the moral object because it's a bit misleading to speak about the moral act or the human act. Human acts come in many kinds, and so do their objects. They are all acts of the will, but the will has a great variety of acts. The broadest distinction, which Thomas also makes at the very beginning of the Prima Secundae, is between interior or elicited acts of the will and exterior or commanded acts. You talked about this yesterday, right? This distinction? I guess. Maybe not. Interior acts are acts that proceed immediately from the will. They include such things as intention, consent, use, and also choice. That's an interior act. Exterior acts are acts that proceed from the will by way of other powers that are under the will's command. These can be bodily acts, such as eating or walking or talking, and mental acts, such as thinking or recollecting. Typically, the object of choice is an exterior act that one goes on to perform, an exterior human act. Now, I do not mean to suggest that Veritatis Splendor denies this, or even fails to acknowledge that the objects of choice, exterior actions, 
are themselves moral acts or human acts. On the contrary, the passage that I quoted insists that the chosen kind of behavior, the concrete action, is not an event or a process of the merely physical order. It's moral. And the article of the Summa that the passage cites, Prima Secunde, question 18, article 6, which is text 3 on the handout, says, acts are called human insofar as they are voluntary. But among voluntary acts, there are two sorts, namely the interior act of the will and the exterior act. And each of these has its object. <coughs> Moreover, in a couple of places, the encyclical does speak of the object that morally qualifies the concrete exterior action. It says in text 4, if the object of the concrete action is not in harmony with the true good of the person, the choice of that action makes our will and ourselves morally evil. And further on, the encyclical, this is also in text four, further on it says that reason attests that there are objects of the human act which are by their nature incapable of being ordered to God. These are the acts which, in the church's moral tradition, have been termed intrinsically evil, intrinsice malum. They are such always and per se, in other words, on account of their very object. The encyclical gives many examples of such acts, acts that are per se and in themselves, acts that per se and in themselves are always seriously wrong by reason of their object. These include genocide, abortion, suicide, mutilation, torture, human trafficking, contraception, and others. But what the encyclical doesn't really address is how to understand the object of the concrete exterior human action. It clearly holds that such actions are moral and that they are morally specified by their objects, but it just does not discuss what that means or how it works. St. Thomas does. So the rest of my talk will concentrate on this, the object of the exterior act, according to St. Thomas. At this point, I'd like to say something, though, about another expression used in the encyclical. We just heard it. Intrinsically evil. In Latin, intrinsice malum. As it happens, this expression is not to be found anywhere in St. Thomas. He never uses that expression, intrinsice malum. But again, that doesn't mean he doesn't have the concept. I think he does. For I think it is quite clear that what the encyclical means by intrinsically evil acts is nothing other than acts that are evil in their species. What does that mean? It means they are evil per se, in virtue of themselves, they're essentially evil, according to their own definitions, or by reason of their definitions. However, I think there might be something just a little misleading even about the term intrinsically. It might sound as though it refers only, only to what is kind of contained within the act, or to what the act itself is, and to nothing else. Well, of course, it does refer to what the act is if it refers to the act's species. 
that is something that the act itself is. For instance, to use Thomas's example, his typical example, if I deliberately take something that belongs to another person, say a car, that act has the species called theft. This is something that the act is, a theft. And it is thereby intrinsically evil. But if we ask, what is it in virtue of which that action is theft? It's the action's object. And that is not something that the action is. Nor is it even contained in the action, or part of the action, or something that the action itself is part of. It's extrinsic to the action. Although, of course, it's also somehow bound up with the action. What is the object of my theft? It is the thing that belongs to another, the other's car. Thomas is really crystal clear about this. This is text five. The thing that belongs to another, res aliena, is the proper object of theft. And to take what belongs to another has its species from the notion of what belongs to another. Ex ratione alieni. For it is from this that it has the species of theft. The thing that belongs to another, the other's car, is not something that the action of taking it is. <coughs> it is not the action's species. It's the principle of the species. The action, the theft of the car, is not the car. Nor is it part of the car nor is the car a part of it. An action may very well have parts. That action may have parts. Part of it is breaking into the car. Part of it is starting the car up, and so forth. The parts of an action, if it has parts, are actions too. But the car is not an action. Now, you may say, this is obvious. Why dwell on this? Well, I fear that the discussion of the moral object in Veritatis Splendor might have the effect, the unintended effect, of insinuating the idea that the object of an exterior moral action is nothing other than the action's species. It might do this precisely because what it almost always refers to as, without qualification, as the object of a human or a moral act is the exterior moral action. For again, it's almost always speaking of that human act, which is choice, whose object is an action of a specific kind. So one might end up thinking that actions themselves or their species are the only things that qualify as moral objects. I, I'm sure that's not what the encyclical intends, but I think it can happen. In fact, it does happen. Recently, just recently, I was reading a discussion by a moral theologian about a case of a journalist who published some potentially damaging information about someone. The theologian was arguing that it was not a case of defamation. And maybe he was right about that. I don't want to go into the case. But what he said was that the moral object, it was his language, the moral object of the journalist's action was not defamation. 
Now that's confused, I think. Defamation is an action. It's not the object of the journal's action, even if it was definite. What he meant, what the theologian meant, was that the moral species of the journalist's action was not defamation. Here's an even more striking example, which I found in some online material for an ethics course. It's attempting to define the idea of the moral object. And it says very simply, it says, it is what one is doing in an act that is the object. Now what one is doing in an act is the act. That's what you're doing, right? It's not the act's object. No act is its own object. Maybe it helps to think of verbs. Acts are signified by verbs. Objects of acts are like, in this respect anyway, like objects of verbs. The objects of verbs are not the verbs that they are the objects of. Right? And the objects of acts, non-moral acts, moral acts, any kind of act, interior, exterior, the objects are not the acts that they are the objects of. Thomas could hardly be clearer about the fact that the object of an action, the object that gives the action its species, is something extrinsic to the action. This is true not just of moral actions, but of actions generally. Thomas understands the object of an action just as Aristotle does. Aristotle's term for it is now that comes into Thomas's Latin, and he uses this word, as oppositum, opposite. Of course, it doesn't mean contrary. An action's object is not the contrary of the action. But it is, so to speak, on the other side of the action opposite from the action's agent, or from the power out of which the action proceeds. It goes from the agent toward the object. It's set over against the action. You can say that's, that's kind of close to what Antikamenon kind of literally means. But the act, it's what the action faces. So for example, the object of the act of digestion is that which gets digested, food. The object is what the action targets. It's not identical with the act's species. It's what determines the species. The object is a formal differentiating principle of the act. And therefore, it does enter into the act's definition. It enters into the definition. What is digestion? The assimilation of food. What is theft? The taking of what belongs to another. Now somebody, a metaphysician, or a budding metaphysician, <coughs> might object that what is in a thing's definition cannot be extrinsic to it. Well, that's true if the thing is a complete substance. That's kind of a distinctive feature of the species of substances. They are defined entirely what's, by what's intrinsic to them. 
So, for example, the formal principles that define animals are their souls, which are intrinsic to the animals. But actions are not substances. They are accidents. And all accidents have things extrinsic to them in their definitions. They at least have their subjects. The subjects of actions are their agents. The agent is not an action. It's outside the action. It's distinct from the action. And some accidents also have other extrinsic things in their definitions. For instance, relations are defined by what they relate a thing to, by their relative opposites. Again. And actions are defined by what they target or they bear upon. St. Thomas says right there in Summa Theologiae, question 18, article 6, that the object of an exterior act is id circa quod est, which we can translate, which Professor Fredoso translates as what it is with respect to, what the act is with respect to, what it faces again. Somewhat confusingly, Thomas also sometimes calls an action's object its matter. We just said it's a formal principle of the act. He also calls it its matter. Now that too might sound like something intrinsic to the act. But Thomas insists that no accidents have matter out of which they are made. You don't take an accident, take some stuff and make an accident out of it. They do have matter in which they exist. Materia inqua, and those are their subjects. They don't exist in them as parts of the subject, but they inhere in the subject. And actions have matter with respect to which they proceed. Materia circa quam. Materia circa quam. That's the object. Thomas inherited that expression, and I found no place where he really explains it. Materia circa quam. I suppose the idea is that the object of an action can be seen as that to which the action is applied. You kind of apply the action to the object. And in that way, maybe it's comparable to the matter to which a form is applied. But in any case, Thomas insists that an action's materia circa quam, its matter, in a way has the function of a form. He just says that. It functions as a form. We call it matter, but it functions as a form. Insofar as it gives the species to the act. And the object of a moral action makes the action good or bad in species. If, you, if the thing that you take is yours, you take your thing, your act is a case of minding your own business, we can say. And that's good. If the thing is another's, that's theft. And that's bad. It's like digestion. If the food that you eat is, is of a sort that agrees with your system, you have good digestion. If it does not agree, you have indigestion. Some objects of moral acts make for moral indigestion. And in their case, too, there's something in us that they do not agree with. And that is reason. Which brings me to the third heading, the perspective of the acting person 
the moral object in relation to intention and to reason. So this brings me to my final area of concern, which is how moral objects relate to the proper sources of human action, their origin in reason and will. I would say that this is what the Veritatis Splendor passage that I quoted at the beginning is referring to when it says that in order to be able to grasp the object of an act, which specifies that act morally, it is therefore necessary to place oneself in the perspective of the acting person. This too is an expression that St. Thomas does not use, the perspective of the acting person. However, I think he could agree with that statement in the sense that he insists that the object that morally specifies an action does so just insofar as it stands in a definite relation to the action's human agent. And more precisely, it does so, it specifies insofar as it stands in a twofold relation to the human agent, a relation, a relation to the agent's will, and through that, a relation to the agent's reason. So I would like to say something which is maybe just a little controversial about the object's relation to the will, and then I'll, like to, I'll use that point to highlight the significance of the object's relation to reason. Now, quite generally, Thomas holds that the object that specifies any act, moral or otherwise, does so insofar as it is something that the act directly bears upon, directly. It cannot be something merely associated <clears throat> with what the act directly bears upon. In Thomas's language, it is what the act bears upon per se, and not just paracidans or indirectly. What does this mean in the case of moral acts? Moral acts proceed from the will. In producing them, the will intends some end, tends towards some end. And Thomas explains, and this is text number six, in things that are for an end, <clears throat> something is said to be per se, which is intended whereas what is outside intention is parachutes. And therefore, he's talking about justice. If someone, if someone does something that is unjust, and it's something in itself that would be unjust, not intending to do what is unjust, for instance, when he does it out of ignorance, not thinking himself to be doing something unjust, such an act is not called an injustice. Since he doesn't intend it, it doesn't specify his act. It's only what's intended that specifies, the per se object. So if you take another's car, honestly thinking that it is your car, and that can happen, you are not guilty of theft. That seems clear. I'm not going to dispute that. However, <clears throat> what if you do know that the car is someone else's, but that is not your reason for taking it. In other words, you do not like taking other people's property. Some people like doing that, you know. Some people like that. <laughs> Those are thieves. Right? And you have nothing against the car's owner. 
you just want to visit a friend in the back country, and you can only get there by car, and you don't have one. If you had one, you'd take your own, but you don't. And here's a car, the, the door's open, the keys are in the ignition, and you're in a hurry. So take the car. Now, of course, you should not take the car. Don't take the car. That's not the question. The question is, why not? The question is, in this case, is your taking the car bad intrinsically by its object, or is it only indirectly bad? In other words, is the, is the owner's being deprived of what is his merely a side effect of what you do? If you're not doing it because it's his, if it's only a side effect, then conceivably you could have had a good reason for doing it. You're doing it as bad, in this case, the case I described, only because your reason isn't really very good. It's not good enough. Now, <clears throat> I would say that this is where it gets a little controversial. This is how the new natural law theory would evaluate that act. In fact, it's how it does evaluate the act. The example, the essentials of my example, I colored it a little bit, but the essentials are taken from uh, a book by Professor Griset. The act is, according to that theory, the act is not bad in species by its per se object. That's because, for the theory, what, only what falls within your intention can be a per se object and specify your act and the cars belonging to someone else, in the case I described, according to the theory, does not fall with, within your intention. It remains outside of your practical proposal, as they call it. It's on the margin, I'm sure they would say, of your perspective as an acting person. Only what gives you a reason for taking the car, only what makes doing that attractive to you, about the car, either as a means or as an end, is within your intention. So John Finnis says, just explaining the point in general, this is text seven, the description under which what is done is intended is settled by one's practical reasoning as an agent, by the intelligible benefit one seeks, and the means one chooses under the description which promises to yield that benefit. So on that view, you do intend to take the car. The car is something useful to you to get to your destination. It's a car that works, it'll car that, it's a car that'll get you to your friend's place. But you do not intend to take another's car because it's being another's is incidental to your purpose. That doesn't contribute at all. In fact, it makes you a little reluctant to do it, but you do it anyway, okay? So on the new natural law theory, your act is bad, not in its kind or in its species or by its personal object, but in an indirect way, by association, by association, per accidents, with a result that you do not have, in this case, a valid reason to allow. So they would say, don't take the car. In this case, they would agree in the conclusion but for a very different reason. Because I do not think that Thomas would agree with that analysis. I just don't think he would agree. He can very well agree that you 
who take the car, that you are not a thief. That is, you do not have the habit, the moral habit of thievery. Okay? Thieves like taking cars and things like that. But your act is still a theft in its species. Because Thomas has a broader view of what falls within an agent's intention. It is not limited to what explains the intention or what serves as a reason or a motive for the intention, what moves the agent's will. Or is that the case with the international law theory? As regards the thing that your action bears upon, everything that you know about it, or in St. Thomas's language, every known condition of that thing falls within your intention. It pertains to your per se object. All of it. Thomas offers what I think is a very, very clear illustration of this point in that De Malo article where he does use the expression objecta morale. The example is this. Suppose a thief, a real thief, a true thief, steals a golden chalice. So his action is definitely theft. It's specified as theft. He's stealing it. He wants to steal it. He knows it doesn't belong. He, he's, that's, what he, that's his job. However, the chalice happens to be a consecrated chalice. And he kind of finally realizes this. And his buddy who's helping him says, hey, wait a minute, this is consecrated. And he says, I don't care. It's incidental that it's consecrated. He's not interested in cheating, stealing consecrated chalice. That's not his, that's not his job. Right? He's not interested in that. that. That would be something else. It's incidental. He's only interested in the gold. He's interested in the gold of the chalice. That's what he wants. Right? So now the question is, the chalice is gold, and it's also sacred. It's a sacred object. Does the sacredness of the chalice in any way specify the thieves' action? He's not interested in that. He's only interested in the gold. Well, for Thomas, it does. It makes it an act of sacrilege in its kind. It makes it a specific kind of theft, which is sacrilegious theft. He thinks that's a species. This is because the sacredness of the chalice does not, it does not fall outside the thieves' intention. And Thomas says that explicitly. This is text 8 on the, on the handout. Although the thief's will does not chiefly bear on the sacred thing, but on the gold, it does bear on the sacred thing as a result. For he wills rather to take the sacred thing than to do without the gold. And bear upon is a way of saying intended. I think I can show you that with other texts. There isn't time. What he's saying here is that the thief chooses to take the sacred thing. Taking the sacred thing, the sacred golden thing, let's say, is the object of his choice. That specifies his choice. And that act itself is specified as sacrilege. His choice just is a choice to do what by its object is sacrilege. I think that's quite right. Thomas's analysis, 
But that leads me to my last point. I just want to raise one question about that analysis. Suppose we grant that the chalice's sacredness directly qualifies the thief's action as bad. Still, if what really moves the thief's will is only the chalice's gold and not its sacredness, is only interested in the gold, we might wonder why its sacredness should be said to go so far as to put the act in another species. Is the chalice's sacredness not rather a sort of, just a sort of circumstance, one that does aggravate the act, <coughs> but without downright specifying the act? If a moral act is a voluntary act, should it not be judged according to how it and its object relate to the agent's will? Well, in a way, yes, it should. So if the thief took the chalice precisely because it was sacred, if he were positively looking to commit sacrilege, that would be his point. if that were his point, that would be worse. But the question of the specification, the specific question of the specification of a moral act turns on the moral status of its object. And that moral status is properly determined not by how the object relates to the will, but by how it relates to reason. For it is, why is this? It's reason that presents the object to the act of the will. Reason is the very first principle of human actions. They're only action, human actions if they also come from the will. They come directly from the will, but reason is the first source. Voluntary action is specified according to how its object compares with the order of reason. The Veritatis Splendor passage, speaking of the object of the act of willing, says, to the extent that it is in conformity with the order of reason, it is a cause of the goodness of the will. The same holds for the object of the will's exterior act. By agreeing with the order of reason, it gives the act a species of good. By disagreeing, it gives a species of evil. A known condition of the object that disagrees with the special order of reason is not a mere circumstance. Even if it only accompanies the condition that directly engages the agent's will, that moves the agent's will, it gives the act a species of its own. It is what St. Thomas calls, quote, a principal condition of the object repugnant to reason. Thomas even says quite generally, this is text number eight, and I'll finish. Actions are called human or moral insofar as they are from reason. And a human act, which is called moral, has a species from the object related to the principle of human acts, which is reason. I hope we can all agree at least on this that both for St. Thomas and for St. John Paul II, to see moral objects from the perspective of the acting person is above all to see them in light of the order of reason. This is the order that is founded upon the precepts of natural law. Thank you very much. <clears throat>